SQL Down Under is a podcast for professionals working in the SQL Server community. SQL Server is a trademark of Microsoft Corporation. Opinions expressed during the podcast are individual opinions and may not reflect the opinions of SQL Down Under or of Microsoft Corporation. Introducing show number 34 with guest Jeff Hyten. Our guest today is Jeff Hyten. Jeff is a senior DB consultant with IntelliNet. Uh, he's had over 15 years' experience working with SQL Server since version 4.2. He's worked in many roles from programming to system administration, database administration, and consulting. Welcome, Jeff. Thank you, Greg. As I do with everyone, first up, I'll get you to describe how, how did you ever come to be involved with SQL Server? Well, this is uh, it's kind of an odd one. I was working and doing process automation software at a steel mill in Alabama. And uh, for those who aren't familiar with the U.S. geography, that's in the uh, southeastern United States. Uh, Georgia is on the coast. you got Florida as the little panhandle thing. And immediately to the left of that is Alabama. And uh, back in the middle of nowhere in a town of about 200,000 or so, we were trying to come up with a data collection system for process uh, collected data to determine quality of our, our finished product. And we were on shoestring budget, and we were trying to make up stuff, and we were trying to find a good way of recording, organizing, and presenting this data. And we saw, uh, myself and, and a, a friend of mine, colleague, saw this, this new SQL database thing, and it's like, you know, I bet we could do that. We've been building stuff in DBase, and thought, hey, this looks cool. This looks a little bit different. And we, we built a system around that, and it's just kind of, Grown from there, one job led to another, led to another. Outstanding. Now, in amongst the SQL MVP community, whenever people start discussing clustering, Jeff's the man they ask. So that's why we had to have you on the show. So we'll talk today about SQL clustering. And I think if we start really with your perceptions of where the technology fits and maybe a good description of the technology itself, because, again, there seem to be a lot of misconceptions. Exactly. I'd, I'd like to actually start with what clustering isn't. <laughs> Sounds good. Uh, clustering, especially in the, the database world, is really an overused term. Uh, if you look at uh, one of the different vendors, it means one thing. If you look at Microsoft, it means something else. Um, what clustering is not is a scale-out technology. It doesn't make your system any bigger. It doesn't make it run any faster. It doesn't make it handle any bigger load. What clustering really is is a failover technology. I look at it as a way to gain that magic four hours, yeah. the four hours being the time from the system crashes to when you get a person in front of it who can do something about it. Um, most, um, most maintenance contracts, most, most support contracts specify four-hour response, and that's kind of where I get that number, that and some, some practical experience. If you're a, a kind of a one-man shop sometimes, in the, if it crashes at the worst possible moment, it may be four hours before you find out about it, wake up, get dressed, and get down to the office and can actually take care of it. Clustering is designed to cover for that magic four hours for you. Yeah. 
and that's really its its number one benefit. Yeah, I think it's good um, you mentioned the non-scale out. I, I I cannot remember the number of times I've been in discussions where people say we're thinking of implementing a multi-node cluster to scale out our capabilities because we need need more performance. And I always say, oh no. <laughs> Well, a lot of that comes from a, an unfortunate uh, choice of terminology, kind of based on really when clustering began. Um, clustering first came into the, the Microsoft realm around the time of SQL Server 7. As a matter of fact, the, the Wolfpack add-on for NT4, which was Microsoft clustering, yeah. and SQL 7 came out around the same time. And uh, I actually got this a little bit from uh, Richard Waymeyer, that there was some pressure from management at Microsoft to include taking advantage of this new Wolfpack in the SQL 7 product. The problem was it was a little bit late in the development to try and bolt all that on, since clustering is some really low-level, the clustering APIs are really low-level file yeah. APIs, and you, you have to test the, the product very rigorously to make sure that it works. So they kind of bolted on a solution, which ended up where you had a primary server of the active server and then you could cluster that with a passive server, which would be the failover. Now, it's very different from what we have now. But anyway, you'd end up with this active-passive, and people were like, well, gee, I'd like to, to use this other node, this passive node, can I? And so they came up with the idea of, all right, I can make an active instance on that one and a passive instance on the other computer, and we'll call it active-active. Yeah. And that was great for SQL 7. Once we got to 2000, it changed because we got multiple instances of SQL in the feature set for SQL 2000. And you got it on a standalone box. You got it on a cluster as well. So we could start stacking as many instances as we really wanted onto a cluster. And people would go, well, I now have an active-active cluster. It's two nodes, two instances. And then we really started getting crazy with four nodes, six nodes, especially when we got Windows 2003 under us to, to really expand it out. Uh, we could go to four nodes with SQL 2000, and now with SQL 2005, we're only limited by how many nodes the OS supports on a cluster. Yeah. But when you start looking at, you know, say four nodes, three instances, well, is that active, 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 passive? Or could it be active, passive, passive, act? You know, what, what is the terminology? And the whole terminology breaks down, and it really doesn't mean what it says. But people still see this active, active thing that means, oh, great, I get two active nodes talking to the same database. Yeah. No, it doesn't work that way, and it's, it's amazing the, the, the number of times I have to, to explain to somebody on the news groups or, or sometimes clients that, nope, that's not really how it works. Yeah, yeah it, it clearly is a common misconception. As I said, I, I get that question regularly. When, when people are looking at options mm -hmm. for trying to improve performance, they think, let's put a cluster in instead. And they think, uh, no, that isn't the case. Yeah, not, not going to get you what you think you get. <laughs> Indeed. Um, now, what's, un what's unfortunate also is even sometimes people who get what a cluster is, that it's a high availability solution, that it's a, a means of implementing high availability, don't understand that it's not magic high availability all by itself. There's a lot of other steps that have to go into a truly highly available solution. Uh, things like solid network infrastructure, good power, an application that can handle the peculiarities of a cluster failover. <clears throat> Excuse me. All of that's necessary in order to take advantage of what clustering can provide to you. In some cases, if you don't have the quality of infrastructure, applications, or, or whatever else you need, 
clustering can actually lower your availability, especially if you try to do it with uncertified or uh, off of or leftover hardware. You can actually make the situation worse and not better. In fact, look, that's been one of the challenges often described with clustering is the hardware compatibility list and the fact that it takes ages for things to get onto that list. So it's tricky for people when they're out buying hardware off the shelf, as it were, to be able to then effectively do clustering because often the list is well behind. So in general, most of the successful ones seem to be more uh, where the vendor is providing that whole solution. Very much so, although um, you don't really have to have a complete end-to-end vendor solution. I found in a lot of cases the real key is the storage vendor because that's where most of the magic happens in clustering. The host hardware computers, as long as they're basic Windows hardware compatible and don't have any particular oddities to them, usually will be okay. Uh, The one mistake you can do in that, though, is buy one now, buy the next one six or eight months and add it to the cluster because you're going to get hardware revisions. You're going to get BIOS revisions. You're going to get differences in the computers. And clustering wants every node as identical as possible. Uh, So if you're going to cluster, buy the machines all at once. Do you buy extra? The real key is the storage. I'm I'm sorry. Do you tend to buy extra? Uh, Generally, no. Uh, because you're going to go ahead and put these machines on a service contract of some kind anyway. Yeah. And the vendor is pretty much obligated to provide solutions as a set. If they really modify one heavily, you can go at it and go back to them and go, look, I bought them as a cluster. You need to make sure everything stays in cluster spec and cluster rev. And they may not always like that, but they really can't argue with it because you're, you're saying I'm, I'm staying within the specs that I bought. Yeah. But, but back to the whole bit with uh, the storage. The storage vendor is really – the key to this Um, because they're the ones that have to make sure that whenever the shared access storage, I I don't like calling it shared storage because we get back to that whole implied active-active thing that we we just got through dismissing, but it's shared connection. Multiple machines can connect, but really only one has true access at any moment. But due to this multi-connected device, that's where they have to make sure that everything stays consistent when it goes from node to node to node. Yeah. And if, they, if, if the storage vendor has it right, everything else generally falls in place. And if they don't, nothing else is going to make a difference. So in, su- in a general summary of the, the overall hardware, what we're talking about with clustering then, um, multiple physical servers, or uh, but basically a shared... But they're, they're generally called nodes yeah, I was in, say, in the clustering so nomenclature. Nodes being the, the, the terminology. Node. And then we have a shared disk subsystem. So we we have a single disk subsystem that may be redundant in itself, and hopefully it is. Um, but all we are clustering, or the pair of things, uh, are the server, not the disk subsystem. Correct. Usually your, your disk subsystem has re- everything except the sheet metal is generally considered redundant in a good, well-designed subsystem. Yeah. It could be all the way up to a mid-range or an enterprise-grade SAN or it could be as simple as a basic SCSI controller with two connectors on it, one for each host node. Yeah. Obviously, the the more you put into it, the more you do, the better off you get. If you if you start off with one of these basic kind of dumb SCSI boxes, you're going to have some performance issues because you have to turn off your controller cache because 
the cash can't sail over. Yeah. So you have to have to do without it. So this is this is something that gets a lot of people that they they try clustering on a very inexpensive budget, and the performance goes down. They go, what happened? Well, you're running a you're running a, a cash without any kind of battery backup or any or sorry you're running a controller without any kind of cash battery backup or otherwise it's just flat to the discs and yeah that's that's going to hurt your performance yeah move up a little bit and you can get into things where the cash and the controllers are embedded into into the array and all you have is a basically a dumb connector type controller in the host computer that means you get your performance back you get cash a lot of times you'll get redundant controllers in there so that if a controller fails you still keep going. And of course you kind of move up to mid-range which sans which usually you want to you want to dedicate those to SQL simply because of the IO load. Um, especially when you're talking about uh, quad proc boxes or, or greater. Yeah. And then you have your full, you know, enterprise grade sans which uh, that's that's a whole different beast. You usually have experts on staff or with the vendor who will be happy to help you with that given the the number of zeros in the contract value. Yeah. Now, one of the questions, while, while we are mentioning SANS, I suppose one of the questions that endlessly comes up uh, whenever I'm talking to the SAN vendors, you endlessly get the discussion about the configuration of physical disks versus logical disks and so on. And often with many of the SAN vendors, they start with a discussion that says, all you need to worry about is the logical, the, the physical doesn't matter to you. Yes, the the magic sand dust yeah. that somehow takes I/O, it takes physical disks and make them magically have more I/O cycles. Some vendors do this. Um, most of the time, it's because they're optimizing for the wrong parameter. Most sand vendors are selling storage, that is megabytes, gigabytes, you know, whatever. Yeah. And they show their, their customers the return on investment for buying a SAN is saving all of the disk management costs and the disk costs. And the way they do this is showing the most effective space utilization of the storage. That means RAID 5 in very large RAID stripes. Yep. What a SQL server needs, in most cases, is not all that much space. I can go down to my local fries and buy a half terabyte drive, one disk. Of course, if I try to do a lot of my database stuff on it, it's going to take days or weeks instead of hours or minutes to, to run. The reason is I.O. cycles. A typical disk, generally, this is, this is a general concern, will give you about 200 reads and about 50 writes per second. <clears throat> and that number hasn't grown dramatically over the past few years. No. Not like the storage capacity, not like the processing capacity. The actual physical number of reads and writes a system can do really hasn't changed that much. So when you start putting all of the overhead of a RAID 5 stripe where you have to read all of the blocks to calculate the parity block, you can all of a sudden saturate your system with reads simply by making a few writes, and there's no room for reads. Yeah. In most In fact, times, that, that may be something storage, worth just quickly explaining to the whole concept of when you're writing to RAID 5, it, it isn't just simple okay. process. There's a there's a there's a real simple there's a real simple formula based on the number of disks in a RAID five stripe. Uh, RAID five is where you have back up even a little bit further and do a quick RAID five overview. RAID five is where you take multiple disks and stripe them together, except one block out of the stripe, one disk's worth becomes parity. Now that parity block is designed so that if you drop a disk out of the set, 
it can calculate what is missing. Yeah. And that parity is rotated around so that for one stripe, it's on disk one. For the next stripe, it's on disk two. And the next one, it's on disk three to kind of balance the load. Yeah. And it's, uh, re- it was originally, I think, redundant array of inexpensive disks. Yeah. Now it's just redundant array of independent disks. <laughs> yes. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. but the, uh, the idea being that you could take simple, inexpensive bricks of storage and make much larger storage units out of them. And it works when what you're measuring is space. If that's what you want, then RAID 5 is great. But remember, SQL wants I.O. You're pushing things out to the disk. You're pulling stuff back. Most SANs, I find, are actually mistuned for SQL. Um, What they do is they run these big – they run the RAID 5 and the, the large cache, but they're designed to pull in small files. Whereas with SQL, we have very large files, but we want specific blocks out of them. So the tuning algorithms are all wrong. Yeah. But when you're, when you're dealing with RAID 5, reads are pretty straightforward. There's no different than any other striping because you're just pulling data off the, off the disks. But when you're writing RAID 5, the performance is actually inversely proportional to the number of disks in the stripe. The more disks you have in the stripe, the worse your write performance. Because if I want to write one block, which is usually how SQL does, it wants to write one page of data here and one way over there and one somewhere else, so it's going to write one block in that stripe. It has to read all of the other disks, or actually all but the parity stripe, because that one's being calculated. Yeah. And, of course, the block that's being written, it doesn't have to read. So it has to read, say I've got eight disks in my stripe. I read six blocks and write two blocks. Yeah. So if it was a single disk, I'd be writing one block. In this case, I'm doing six reads, two writes, n minus two, and two, and double the writes. So I'm taking the capacity of my disk, the I.O. capacity, and trading that for storage. And for most applications, that's not a bad thing. For SQL, it's truly the worst thing you can do. Yeah. Um, I had a client this week that I had to go explain that to, and they're still drinking the Kool-Aid and believing that the magic sand dust fixes everything. Yeah. And, I mean, we've demonstrated we flattened the cache with SQL. This is a big X64 box, SQL 2005. And it's blasting through their their two million dollar toy. Yeah, indeed. And they they just don't believe it. Yeah, actually, it's, you can show it's them the funny numbers, you you it. mentioned about the cache too, because that's another thing that usually then next comes out of their mouth when you say yes, it does still matter that you get the oh yes, but the cache is so large that that it won't be an issue. <clears throat> well, let's see. I've got in the in the system I'm talking about, they've got. Uh, I think 8 gig of cache per controller. Well, that's not bad. I've got 32 gig of cache in my SQL server, 32 gig of RAM in my SQL server, most of which is going to be data cache. Yep. And I've got a 150 gig data file. i got news for you. I'm going to flatten your cache. Because even, even in the, the best case, though, once I've saturated the cache, it, it actually can hurt. It acts like a, a big bucket holding up my I.O. from getting to the disks. Yeah. Now, when I'm writing, that's actually not so bad because as soon as I put something in a hardened sand cache, it goes, yes, I've completed the right operation, and it turns it loose. But if I need to read something from the SQL or from the, the sand into SQL, I issue a read, and I have to wait for it to actually go get the block off the disk and give it back to me. The more cache I have to buffer those read requests, the higher my latency is going to be. Mm. And in the case of this particular client, we were seeing latencies so high that it was affecting the cluster stability. Yeah. 
um, the what, what we call the looks alive and is alive uh, queries to the disks were failing. Actually, the other I guess I guess this kind of brings bring us back around to where the you know what what is the cluster and how does it work? Well, I suppose so it kind of makes sense of that statement. Before we leave SANS, there's a couple of other things on SANS while we're at it. Um, another one is um, I often come across in hosted environments shared SANS, and uh, that one uh, scares me as well because I regularly end up in scenarios where periodically there are performance problems that are inexplicable. That was, again, this is one of the reasons with this particular client I was brought in. One of their systems was mysteriously crashing in the middle of the night. And it turned out that a different system was saturating the, uh, the RAID stripe. And this system was unable to get anything to or from the disks. Yeah. Because the first system was not clustered, it wasn't quite as sensitive to it. It, it was simply complaining about I.O. latency. But there was nothing in the cluster that said, wait a minute, that disk's dead from this machine. I need to move to another one. Yeah. So it was actually forcing a separate cluster to fail over. And, uh, you know, they keep telling me that, that you know, they give these little stripes, they give me these, these 50 or 100 gig stripes off these very large RAID sets, and that's going to fix all my problems. And I'm looking at it going, no, that's causing the problem, not <laughs> fixing the problem. That's good. And then they offer to sell me the whole SAN, you know, internal dollars, of course. Yeah. Sell me the whole SAN for my SQL application, and I'm like, hmm, nothing personal, but if I'm buying one for SQL, it's not going to be that one. Yeah. <laughs> Indeed. Now, listen, the, we're not going to get into brands on this yeah. one. <laughs> the, the other question I've got in there still, too, that comes up uh, are block sizes and alignment. Okay. The first one is really simple. I actually took me a while to chase down the folks at Microsoft to get a recommendation on block sizes. And it, it's actually pretty simple when you, when you finally listen to their answer and go, well, yeah, duh. Go with what the manufacturer default recommends because that's what they've tuned their box to run best at. Uh, the best experiments they've been able to do in the Microsoft labs, from what I gather, was just a, a percentage point or two of difference by playing around with stripe sizes. Yep really not worth the effort. That's not where you want to put it. Now, alignment, however, is a huge issue. That can take out, not having it properly aligned can take out up to 40% of your I.O. capacity. And for SQL system, that can be critical. That's the difference between, you know, uh, know, that's the difference in in sometimes making your overnight run window and not making your overnight run window. And so actually, maybe if you explain alignment, uh, yeah. Yeah, that, that, that's, that's where I was about to head. When, whenever Windows formats a disk using the NTFS file system, it creates what's called a master boot record at the beginning. Uh, even if it's not a bootable disk per se, it's going to create this MBR record. This is where it places a signature, some other information about the disk. The interesting thing is Microsoft chose a very odd size for that master boot record. It chose 32.5K. <laughs> for Windows 2003. <laughs> Do not ask me where that comes from. I think they just took whatever the old one was and padded it up so that's enough. A good round computing number. And they simply number. didn't think about... <laughs> yeah, they didn't, they didn't think about alignment. Now, when you're doing mapping straight to blocks of disks, it doesn't matter. But under the underneath everything, part of the SAN magic that most of the time works pretty good for files is it takes very large disk stripes so that it does pretty good-sized read and write blocks into and out of the disks, saving head movement, stuff like that. Uh, but it does, does these large read and writes, 
and, and creates these stripes and abstracts those back into the logical blocks that a regular physical disk would see. So it takes a big block and slices it a little bit. Well, what we would like to do is map our allocation blocks and our read-write blocks to those same underlying large stripes. Most of the time, those are 64 or 128K in size. Yeah. Uh, so what you want to do is create your master boot record to be an integer multiple of that. Now, since SQL writes in 64K extents, that's a nice round number to move everything to. Yeah. The problem being, you can't do that simply by right-clicking on the blank drive in Device Man or in Disk Manager and going Partition. You actually have to use a command line tool to do this. That's built into the service pack and R2 versions of Server 2003, but you have to, to load it up separately from, I think, the Windows 2000 uh, resource kit yep. if you wanted to, to do it on any previous version. That's really tricky. If you don't do this, when you issue an I.O. that crosses that boundary, that single I.O. at the OS level, breaks into two IOs at the SAN level. Yeah. So it has to go read two of those big 64 or 128K stripes. And again, depending on your IO pattern, it can cost you 40% of the throughput. Yeah, indeed. Actually, another one while we're at disk technologies, I suppose uh, alternate technologies like solid-state drives? Mm-hmm. Um, of course, everything maps back into a physical disk unit with blocks, sectors, and everything, because all of our uh, disk management assumes that. It, it assumes that there's, there's the same logical layout of a disk, that, that this is how it's broken up in, in, into. It's not actually true memory mapping it. If you look at, a, um, say, a, even a, a small SD card or USB stick, you'll see that's formatted as NTFS or FAT32 or something like that. It looks like a block device. Everything's going to look like that. The big advantage you get on that is the lack of physical head movement. Yeah. You don't have to go settle the heads. You don't have to go move this. So random IOs go much, much higher. This is, this is what Microsoft did when they built, um, what is it, uh, Superfetch and ReadyBoost into the new Vista product. Mm. They use slower solid-state devices. If you've ever tried to copy a, a large file to a USB key, you know that it's faster to actually copy it to a disk. Yeah. But if you try to copy little bitty files, it goes fairly well. And that's what the, the technology that they're using there for is to uh, replace all these lookups of these little bitty DLLs or reference files or chunks of the registry, pieces of that, into the solid state and save those, those, all those little head movements and all that rattling of the disk. And on the net, it speeds it up. The idea being with, with solid-state devices, you get the, the same type of thing. I see a lot of people try to use those for log devices because they think that's the most critical I.O. But in reality, with a decent amount of cash and good disks, RAID 1 or RAID 10 layout, you're not going to be log-bound on a SQL server yeah. uh, very much. Uh, putting those as data or even more importantly as key indexes, because indexes tend to get fragmented, especially non-clustered indexes. So having anything that can take that fragmented I.O. or that random I.O. and kind of take away the fragmentation effect of it, everything at that point becomes contiguous. 
you never even have to bother with defragmenting the discs. Yeah, I think I think that's the key <coughs> message. Defragmenting your yeah, is, defragmenting your indexes. Yeah, that, I mean that's the key thing. So they're they're really good for random I/O because we have no seek time. I mean, so clearly, uh, in fact, one of uh, my friends in New Zealand was telling me that they had a process that had a huge amount of random I/O, uh, and they changed to using one of these new RAMSAN drives. And literally, they had a process that went from something like 10 hours down to like 14 minutes or something. It was just completely ridiculous, the difference. Yeah, the, one of the first applications I saw of those was actually not database. It was in a, uh, a large-scale ma- uh, email center where these people were generating large amounts of email, both in and outbound, and needed to process it. And they dropped a RAM disk behind everything, and it just... It was incredible the differences. Yeah. So I suppose the uh, do you, have you seen that implemented much for SQL Server boxes yet? Not a lot. I've seen some people talk about it until you start talking about how much money it costs yeah. to put together one in the hundred gig plus range, and then they go, "Oh, let's try regular disks first and see if we really need that." Yeah. <laughs> and and you know, I haven't I haven't seen anybody yet that just was willing to trade the amount of money it takes for the the benefits that you get out yeah. of it yet. But yeah, certainly the closest thing I see to that is, is people with small databases, uh, you know, under 50 gig or so, cramming 32 gig of, of RAM in a in a box, and basically being able to hold most, if not all, of their database in RAM at one point. Yeah. I, I think that's the, 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 the sweet spot. Seen. Yeah, I think that's the absolute sweet spot. I've seen some that have very, very high throughput, but not huge databases. And for that sort of thing, yeah, the the the, the, the difference is just breathtaking. No, that's great. So anyway, so that kind of leaves us uh, probably then beyond sand. So we've kind of dismissed some of the sand magic dust, <laughs> you said. And uh, basically, so in terms of getting the disk subsystem right, that's a key thing. Uh, then in terms of what are the other requirements hardware-wise for clusters? Well, uh, you need at least two network connections. Um, the cluster needs one way to talk out to the, the public world so that the clients can connect to it. It also needs a private communication path. Uh, the reason being is for any kind of state changes, sometimes it has to take a NIC offline while it does certain things to it during the failover. So it always wants to have a communication path clear for itself. Now, the, the second communication path, a lot of people want to try and put in these big gigabit NICs and all that. Uh, this this would for the uh, is, a, is a time playing, when I wish I could get a One sec. Playing for acronym, the heartbeat acronym police, too. I should mention NIC is Network Interface Card. Yep. <laughs> Okay, I'm sorry. I'm 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 bad about speaking computer ease. I'll, <laughs> I'll admit okay. that. <clears throat> but um, no, anyway, the um, the heartbeat network, as this is called, uh, really is very low traffic. Uh, it remind. I wish I could get the old old uh, coaxial based Ethernet, not the the twisted pair that we use today, but the old coax stuff, because one cable routed between them with little drops on it would be perfect. Mm. Uh, you know, for a, for a multi-node cluster. 10 megabit per second is more than adequate. Uh, it just needs some way of saying, are you there? Who are you? I'm in charge. You do this. That, real simple, low-impact low stuff. Um, it does need to be low latency, though. That's one of the reasons that there's some challenges in making what are called geoclusters, that is a, a cluster that's geographically separated from one location to another. 
so that you have um, physical failover. Say you have one in New York and you want another one over in Boston or, or you know, pick, pick two cities that you're familiar with. Yeah. <laughs> and um, you want that. that. That's very challenging because that, that communication has to happen quickly. It's just not a very high volume of communication. Yeah. So once you've got the, the network, and, of course, these have to be on different subnets so that uh, they don't don't even see each other. As a matter of fact, it should be that the heartbeat network is unrouted. It is completely isolated. It doesn't ever get outside. Yeah. So it, it, no, the computers never even try to use it to talk to anything in the outside world. Yeah. Uh, once you've got that, um, the only other thing is, of course, the the clustering software, a, a clustered virtual computer, as it were, not not to be confused with you know tr- virtualization of, of running one OS inside another, but the virtual instance of SQL really has only, or a virtual instance of anything, really only has three major components. It has a, a disk or LUN to anchor it. It has an IP address, and it has a network name. That constitutes a unique system within a cluster. Uh, the cluster itself has one of those, and every SQL instance has one of those. Uh, of course, the SQL instances also have the SQL applications, the SQL server, the SQL agent, possibly SQL full text. But uh, really what we're, what we're doing is we're creating an isolated virtual system that can float between physical hosts yeah. when we make a cluster. And... I suppose another concept in there then is the basic disk layout that's occurring with a um, with a cluster. I suppose I'm, I'm leading towards right. forum drives and things. Yeah. Exactly. There's the the first thing you have to do is build the cluster itself before you ever install SQL, and the cluster consists of the quorum drive, the cluster name, and the cluster IP address. Now these are uh, these names and addresses are in addition to the basic IP addresses that the host nodes have and the basic computer names that the host na- hosts have. I like to use host names when I'm building test things like east and west. Yeah. Because it tells you, you know, yeah, I've got I've got two different machines. And then I can use a virtual machine of north or south. So and then the, the quorum the the um, the cluster itself can be I like to I like to use ocean names in my test cluster. So uh-huh. I, I'll name a a test cluster Atlantic or Pacific or Indian or something like that. Just it, it's it's just a naming convention I've kind of gotten yeah. used to over the years. But so if I'm building the Pacific cluster, I'll have it living on nodes. Well, it will live on one of the no, uh, of these nodes at a time. But the machines that are cons- that the, the cluster consists of are going to be east and west, and. The cluster, uh, as I said, it has the, the name, the IP address, and the quorum drive. The quorum drive has a unique role in the cluster. It's the tiebreaker. One of the problems that a cluster can have is what's called split brain. If I cut off all communications between the nodes of a cluster, how does each node know which one should be running things? Yeah. The answer is whoever owns the quorum drive owns the cluster. For, for, for classic literature fans, it's the conch from Lord of the Flies. <laughs> okay, yeah, obscure, obscure reference. Ah, no, no, that's fine. I'm yeah. sure that'll sit with many of the listeners. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> but the, anyway, the, the quorum splits, uh, the quorum prevents split brain. Whoever owns it arbitrates all decisions and breaks all ties. 
That's great. Actually, another one, while we're a, a little bit still on the diskish end of things, uh, what your thoughts on SAN replication technologies? Uh, those are actually pretty pretty powerful, especially now that Microsoft has put some pieces into the SQL product to kind of help with that. Um, they've kind of leveraged the volume shadow service piece to allow you to do things like SAN snapshots. Um, the SAN replication is actually used mostly to enable excuse me, geographic clusters. I remember we were talking earlier about the difficulty of having clusters talking across these long distances. Yeah. Well, one of the keys is that you need a storage system that looks local to every node. And the only way you do that is to have some type of a SAN replication in that. Uh, and that needs to be real time, so you end up with some fairly severe geographic limitations. Um, something on the order of less than 100 kilometers, but not by a whole lot, is about your upper limit yeah. of how far you can have a couple of machines apart in real-time synchronous mode. If you try to go much further than that, you have to do some type of asynchronous and that means that there's going to be some downtime or potential data loss when they find if there's a, a catastrophic failure of the the primary system. And how SQL Server aware do they need to be? Uh, not really. Um, I mean, there's some there's some hooks in there from the manufacturers. The biggest thing that they need to be aware of is to keep multiple ones in sync. Um, to to kind of back, go back and explain one of these if you. Actually, I should also say LUN, LUN logical unit number. Yeah. Right, yeah, logical unit number. What happens when you build up a SAN is you take a lot of disks and you build a RAID set or a RAID array, depending on what the manufacturer calls it. Then you take slices of these arrays, and they're called LUNs. The LUNs are then zoned or presented to various hosts uh, that are connected through usually a, a fabric, uh, fiber channel fabric switch network. The um, the LUNs look like physical disk drives to the host computers. It's very simple. So um, the key with this, though, is because we like in SQL to keep physically separate disks for our data versus our log versus our tempdb now. If I'm going to fail that over from one storage system to another, I need to make sure that I'm keeping them all in sync. One of the things that SQL assumes is when I write to a disk, and it says it's done, it's going to keep it that way. Yeah. So when I write something into LUN A, which is going to be my LUN L, which is going to be my logs, and LUN M, which is my data, I can't afford them to get out of sync when they fail over to another box. And that's the one, one key piece you have to have. If you can do that and keep them in sync with each other, then the box really supports everything SQL needs. That's the only thing it has to really be aware of. Yeah, that's great. Well, listen, that's uh, probably a good point. We'll take a break, and uh, we'll continue on after the break. Okay. As well as community resources such as this podcast, SQL Down Under offer mentoring services and both private and public training options. If you need to get your project back on track, or if you need to get it off to a good start, why not give us a call? We have also recently introduced a series of online courses available in both Asia-Pacific and US-UK time zones. In particular, the first course that's offered in this series is 
query performance tuning. You'll find details at www.sqldownunder.com. Welcome back from the break. Uh, as I deal with everyone, I also ask you, is, is there a life outside SQL Server? Sometimes I wonder. Um, <laughs> the, the answer is yes, there, there is. Um, I've got a, a family. I've been married now for about uh, 15 and a half years. A large number of my friends have lost money on that. Uh, they were betting somewhere around two or three months before she killed me. Um, I have uh, three daughters, and uh, even the dog, the cat, and the guinea pig are female, so it's a very interesting house to live in. Uh, I had that. I had three daughters as well, yeah. <laughs> so. um, I also like to, uh, let's see, one of my hobbies is uh, tropical fish. A, a wonderful hobby to, to teach patients and careful management. It, it's, a, it's a great hobby for a DBA because you need to remember one thing. No matter what you do, your, your primary goal is to keep the fish alive. And the more you change things, the more likely you are to kill them. So you, you, you have to think real carefully and plan before you do anything drastic. Uh, on a serious note, they often say that, they, uh, that uh, fish and things are, are good for kids, uh, because it actually teaches them that things do die. <laughs> so. Well, um, to to kind of uh, bring that full circle, yeah, we we had that happen. We had uh, we got a dog. My wife and I got a dog about four weeks after we were married, and we did have to to put the dog to sleep just about a month ago, and that was a a rough time for all of us. But it was an important life lesson for the family. Yes. So yes, it is. You know the you know the the dog was uh, and she's you know. Been, been a family member for longer than any of the kids, of course. But uh, anyway, that's uh, yeah, <laughs> that's enough of that. But uh, any of the follow any of the local sport, the baseball or football or any of those? Well, I'm a huge fan of uh, University of Alabama football. That's that's mm-hmm. where I went to school. Uh, it's had a really great history. Uh, we've had some rough times lately, but <laughs> uh, you know, there's there's always next year here. Um, <laughs> There's a, we had a, a really one of the, the greatest coaches ever many, many years ago, a guy named uh, Paul Bear Bryant. And uh, there's a joke going around that how many Alabama fans does it take to change a light bulb? The answer is three. One to change it and two to talk about how bright that old bulb used to burn. <laughs> I'm also a big fan of, uh, of uh, NASCAR. That's uh, American stock car racing. Oh, okay. Um, so that's uh, that's always fun to watch. It's uh, it's entertaining racing and uh, entertaining personalities too. Uh, yeah. I believe we got one guy from uh, Australia recently. Yeah, and came here last year to, to try his hand at it, and he's he's working his way up the ranks and seems to be doing doing pretty well. Yeah, no, I, I, I did notice uh, one or two that are sort of into the NASCAR side of things. Yeah, no, it's it's interesting. There there are a number of people locally here who sort of follow it. Uh, I suppose since the the days of cable TV and things have appeared. You can you can watch almost anything from anywhere nowadays. So. Got a point. <laughs> Indeed. The, in fact, it was funny when you were mentioning uh, at the beginning the sort of uh, where the state was, and you were sort of trying to describe where that fitted in. It uh, it uh, reminded me. I, I've done quite a bit of training on some U.S. military bases, uh, and. Uh, um, many times in Japan, and uh, what's sort of interesting on the military bases is that they get the same sort of uh, cable TV with movies and things that that you'd normally get at home. But uh, of course, 
when they would normally have ad breaks, the arrangement is that they're not allowed to show the advertisements. So uh, uh, they try and fill it in <laughs> with other things. And uh, one of the things that they, they uh, have is a, a, a little show called What State Is That? And uh, it sits there and it sort of describes a bit about the state and then you have to guess what the name of the state is and then it shows you where it is. And I, I, I cannot remember the amount of time I have sat there watching what state is that. So <laughs> I think I've started to get a pretty good idea where most of the states are now. <laughs> I just endlessly ended up watching the show. And uh, the, the other one that they use is uh, uh, another little fill-in in the Navy, things like, uh, what section 53 means to you. <laughs> that's, the, that's the other thing they Sounds get. Sounds like truly, truly compelling programming, yes. <laughs> it's extraordinary. <laughs> let, me, let me guess, there wasn't a remote or a way to change the channel. <laughs> you were pretty much stuck. <laughs> that was dreadful. <laughs> but uh, oh, look, uh, I was left under no illusion, uh, for example, that if I was caught with uh, inappropriate substances while uh, while serving on a Navy vessel, exactly what would happen to me? <laughs> there was no question about that. <laughs> but anyway, so back on to uh, SANS, I suppose, the, uh, oh, sorry, on the clusters, the, maybe we should start with any tips and tricks related to installation. The first one is, is something I learned from my grandfather, really. He was a, a master craftsman cabinet maker, and the, one of the reasons that my online handle is, is SQL Craftsman is sort of a, a way to kind of honor that. Yeah. But um, the, uh, you know, the, the first, first rule of woodworking is measure twice, cut once. Yes. And the first rule of clustering is plan it, plan it, and plan it again. Make sure you've got all of your network layout chosen. Make sure you've got all your disks laid out carefully. Pick your network names. Don't You, you want to have a complete checklist to go through when you're building this thing because you don't want to try to undo or back out because a lot of times the only way to do it is to flatten the box and start over. Yeah, I suppose that's, it carefully. A, that's an important message is that from what I've seen most of the time, changing things later is hard. It, it can be very difficult. It can be very challenging, although... Clustering does have a couple of tricks in it that, that make changing certain things later on fairly easy. For example, if you wanted to put a larger drive in, you wanted you had filled up your 100-gig line and you wanted to swap that for a 200-gig line, if you can take the outage time, you can swap the disk, that is, take the contents of this drive, they call it drive in, copy the exact contents to the new disk, change the drive letters, set the dependencies, fix everything in the clustering, bring it back up, and it will work perfectly. The yeah. only thing SQL sees is the drive letter. Yeah. So being able to do stuff like this in a, uh, a kind of a, a swap-out mode is something that's pretty unique to, uh, to SQL mm. and to SQL clustering. So planning, but, super important, first up. Absolutely, planning. Make sure you've got all your, your hardware in there and... and don't try to build your first system as a production system. When I first started learning, we really didn't have good virtualization technology. As a matter of fact, I went to a class back in 2001. Uh, it was Kimberly and uh, Don's first big high availability one that they did. It was taught in Redmond. Product, su product support services actually built 25 clusters, physical clusters, for us to test with and, and teach on. 
and we learned to do using those, and they actually ended up re-imaging them while we were at lunch so that we could try different things with them. That's how hard it was to do clustering and learn clustering when it was first, uh, when it was really first popular. Yeah. Or first possible, uh, beyond some of the, the weird gyrations of, of SQL 7. I mean, this is when, when we had SQL 2000 and we were able to do clustering in some kind of a, a sane manner. Now we have virtual, uh, systems and we can build clusters in the virtual systems. There's actually a TechNet how-to webcast on exactly how to build SQL 2005 cluster using Microsoft Virtual Server. I, I advise anybody who wants to play with clustering, do that. Yes. Because it certainly beats trying to scrounge hardware and build yourself this little junky external SCSI controller and connect our SCSI enclosure and connect everything up, building what I, what I used to call a cheap cluster. Yeah. <laughs> you couldn't really run anything on it, but it was a great training tool. Now you can put that same training tool in a virtual system and carry it with you on a laptop. Actually, there's also a uh, a TechNet webcast or a webcast up from uh, Brad McGeehy, uh also that walks through building a SQL Server 2005 cluster on virtual server. Yes, I've, I've uh, sat in some of Brad's presentations and, and seen his materials. He's very good, very careful, very thorough instructor on how to do uh, clustering. Uh, it's an extremely good resource to look at. Yeah, and actually Brad's, uh, from memory, he's now actually doing work for Redgate, I think, uh, directly, but uh, a quick shout-out to Brad. Yeah, I, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah he's, he's kind of taken over, especially their uh, representation in the uh, U.S. to the to the user and to the MVP community. I know he's, he's really jumped into that role and has, has done, done a lot of good stuff. I think we've, uh, I know I've seen uh, a lot more responsiveness out of, of Redgate in terms of, Listening to what the the community wants to do and trying to to meet those needs than we did before he was involved. Uh, and a quick shout out to Rachel too, also who's the community lady there, who's been uh, really excellent with various code camps and things we've had around the world as well. But the um, mm-hmm. so uh, I think yeah, it is certainly worth having a look at that uh, or uh, or similar. But the webcast that uh, Brad did, because yes, he does at least wander you through screen by screen and shows you what's involved. Mm-hmm. Now, once you've built one, you need to start learning how to do certain pieces with it. Uh, you need to learn how to break it. Uh, you've got, uh, in the documentation, they describe two types of failures. Books Online describes a type 1 failure where you completely lose a node and have to rebuild it, and a type 2 failure when you can actually recover the node, but only partially, and you, you, you may have to do some things with it. So uh, walk yourself through those scenarios because... They're not as straightforward as you'd think, especially after you've had a cluster in for a little while and have had to apply any kind of service packs or hot fixes to it. Uh, uh, the, That's where you, it gets entertaining. You've wandered into my next question, of course, which is related to applying service packs. It's fun. In SQL 2000, it was simple. Go to the node that was current host for the instance, run the service pack. When you're done, you're done. You're off for about 15 minutes or so, and it's all happy. Same thing with a hot fix. Beautiful. Easy. But, of course, they couldn't let it go. <laughs> Had to make it a little more complicated. The problem comes in that in SQL 2005, the installer is not really cluster aware for all components. Um, only the SQL server, SQL agent, SQL full text, and analysis services are natively clustered. 
Everything else is node specific. So when you're building a one of the, the common questions I get on a, a two node cluster is, I fell over the second node, I can't find Management Studio. What happened? Well, the yeah. answer is you didn't install it. Um, what I actually like to do is go and install all of the non-clustered components to all of the nodes first. Yep. So that I've got Management Studio, I've got the client configuration, to, or I've got the configuration tools, I've got the Surface config, I've got all that stuff sitting there waiting for me when I finally bring in the clustered engine pieces. Mm. Yeah, no, that, that's important. The, in fact, it's one of the mm. other things that surprises people too, even just the uh, things like integration services not even being instance aware. So, I mean, yeah, there's a complete difference with all these components as to what roles they can fill. Right. Now, it's possible to cluster integration services. Microsoft suggests you don't do it. Um, I've actually come up with a little bit more complex rule that I try and follow, and uh, and that is if you've got multiple instances, it's probably a good idea so that you don't so that you you can control what's going on. Yeah. Uh, if you have items residing on clustered resources that you need to get to, then that's probably a good idea. Uh, a lot of people keep their SSIS packages on the file system. If you're going to do that in a cluster, you're going to have to cluster SSIS. Uh, there's a really, there's a, a KB article on exactly how to do it, and you read past the first half, it tells you don't, yep. and then it tells you exactly what to do, and it, it works. Uh, I'm actually supporting uh, a couple places that have clustered SSIS. Uh, had a real interesting time recently when we had to replace one of the failed nodes in the SSIS cluster. Um, that gives you the, uh, that's a, r- a reminder to always go through the exercise of testing it on virtual first. Um, one of the things that I've, I've discovered, because this was a, a post-SP2 hotfix system. In other words, we had SP2 on it. We had a later build, I believe uh, 3161, something like that on there. And uh, one of the easy things to do when you're trying to put one of these back together is to miss a reboot, especially on the so-called passive node or at least the node that you don't have on the con- – or you're not on the console of. Yep. Um Speaking of which, that's another little gotcha that I've discovered on building clusters. If you're on SQL 2005, you can really only be logged into the node you're loading SQL from. If you try to log into the pass- one of the passive nodes, more than half the time the install will fail, and it'll be really vague as to as to how that happened. The installer doesn't really pop up a lot of error messages. You have to go look at, find, and analyze the log files to determine why this thing fails, which when you're trying to do a repair under a maintenance window is not always the easiest thing in the world. Yeah. Back to the need to practice and test it on the on the virtual system and get your checklist of where you're simply executing it during your maintenance windows. Yeah. Actually, another question while we're on uh, this sort of thing, what's your feeling on upgrades from 2000 to 2005? <clears throat> uh, as far as cluster upgrades go, I simply do not trust a full in-place upgrade. <laughs> Good. I'm glad, Microsoft hear, are great. glad to hear somebody else say that. <laughs> I mean, the guys at Microsoft are great. I actually uh, sat down with the program manager in charge of the installation and clustering group at the uh, 2007 PASS Summit. He was uh, at the Ask the Experts booth for a while, and he had mock-ups of all the cool new stuff. We'll, we'll get to that later. But um, uh, I simply don't trust the installer to do everything right. 
clustering is high availability, and if you if you run the installer and it doesn't work, your only real fix is to flatten the box and start over. Yeah. Personally, I like to do a side-by-side migration if I have the room, that is create another clustered system, move everything over. If I can't, I at least try to do a data-in-place uh, migration, and that is where I detach my databases, apply, uh, allow, uh, connect them to the new clustered instances, set my dependencies. This is this kind of – let me break off the one little side here because this is a, uh, something that – I get a lot as well. People put a new disk on their cluster and wonder why SQL can't write to it. Mm-hmm. And very simply put, the clustering has to have a series of dependencies. Certain things have to come online before others. I have to have the disks there before I can bring SQL up because it needs to see them. The clustering handles that with what it calls dependencies. SQL is dependent on the disk. Well, SQL is smart enough in a cluster to say, if, you're not, if I'm not dependent on this disk, I can't write data files to it. If you go in and set the dependencies using the advanced properties in the cluster administrator, you're right, right to it. And if not, you'll go kind of buggy trying to figure it out. <laughs> that that question pops up a uh, a huge amount. And I suppose the other thing, yeah. just a little side note, is that before attaching the databases to uh, a 2005 uh, that used to be 2000, I'd be mighty, mighty sure I've got a copy of those databases because there's also no going back once you've attached them. Absolutely. Now, this is where one of the high, high-end SANs can, uh, or even mid-range SANs with the right software can help. I recently did, well, recently, about seven months ago, I guess, did an upgrade of a very large database. This is on the order of 600 gig plus of an OLTP system. Um, massive, massive system. It was a 32-proc box. It was actually going to a 16-proc dual-core 64-bit that by the time its busy season rolled around, they'd, they'd put another eight cores onto it. Mm. So it was a 24-proc, or eight procs, 24-proc, 48-core, big honking system. What we did is we actually used the SAN snapshot technology. So we took a snapshot, which uh, much like the, the database snapshots, only uses a, a differencing file, and then applied that, then then showed those LUNs over to the, uh, presented those LUNs over to the new system. And if we had failed, we would simply have reverted the snapshot, which would have been a relatively short amount of time. That was our rollback procedure. We didn't have to have an extra 600 gig of high I.O. capacity fan storage. Yeah. So definitely, definitely having the way to go back, but leverage your other technologies sometimes. Instead of having to make a backup, maybe... If you've got that SAN snapshot technology, use it. Yeah, no, that's good. Yeah, it seems to be a common misconception that if you take a 2000 database and attach it to 2005, I've often had people say, oh, yeah, but I'll leave it at database compatibility level 8. But yeah, once it's attached, that <laughs> that's it. it. It's different, yeah. Because the compatibility level um, is simply a parser or a, a, a syntax resolution. Yeah. If there's any ambiguity in the syntax between SQL 8, SQL 9, or 2000, 2005, uh, it resolves it in favor of whichever your setting is. That's the only thing that, that compatibility level really does. Uh, there's a few features that you have to have full 9.0 compatibility to, uh, to enable. Um, but for the most part, that's all it is, is, is simply syntax resolution. Yeah, I find it it doesn't uh, keeping things at 8.0 doesn't buy me much at all. In fact, the the only time uh, I would ever 
tend to keep things at 8.0 is really where there is uh, maybe some old syntax or uh, probably uh, even that I try and fix straight away, but uh, more like uh, object names that have become reserved words or something like that. I mean, that, that's about the only sort of scenario. Uh, I, but yet I see people who routinely leave systems at 8.0 compatibility level, and uh, I, I don't think they realise it really doesn't buy them anything much at all. I think I think part of that is benign neglect. They don't realize if you attach a system, a SQL 2000 database to 2005, by default it stays in 80. You have to you have to manually change it to yep. 90 compatibility. Yep. And a lot of people just don't go through that step. Mm. Um, but yeah, the, the the problems I've always found with the the compatibility is going to be either query hints or um, order by. Uh, operations. Yeah. And I because found the, the syntax rules for order by were some of the biggest changes we saw in 2005. Those are the those are the two big breaking changes I've seen in the field. Yeah, the the other one I have seen is people who still had the uh, the old join syntax, the asterisk equals and uh, that sort of thing. So, uh, but again, hopefully yeah, I, not much of that, and it needs to be fixed. So, yeah, if, if you're using that, you deserve to have your system break. Uh, that, that's probably a little harsh, but you know, you, you kind of get the sentiment there. It's like, you know, it's not. It's not something you can just build and, and run forever. You kind of got to maintain this once in a while. No, that's good. So, any other hints with installation or maintenance with service packs, or is that uh, again the, the because of there's there's so many varieties, especially when you start playing with multi-node, you know, three, four, five nodes in a system. Simply build build yourself a test platform and practice it. Measure what what happens. Check the versions of each of the nodes, each of the components when you're doing this. Um, again, clustering, kind of going back to our, our beginning of this, clustering isn't a magic bullet. It's part of an overall high availability plan. That plan has to account for people, process, and technology. Clustering will help the technology end of it, but you still have to have good management practices. If you drop the database... Clustering won't help you. Yeah. If you have uh, somebody that comes in in the middle of the night and mops your machine, clustering's not going to help you all that much. <laughs> you have to have all of the right other pieces in there for clustering to buy you that magic four hours that we talked about at the very beginning, that time when you don't have a person in front of the console, that you get another computer that sits there and watches the first one all the time going, are you alive, are you alive, are you alive, and takes over the minute it isn't. One argument I hear regularly now, they say that the basic server hardware has got to an amazing reliability level and it's more disks that tend to fall over. And they're, uh, given the fact we've gone with uh, I, a discussion I get endlessly now is that is there much point still to clustering on the basis that it's really only protecting from server failures, not drive failures, and they're now fairly rare. What's your feeling there? Um. I think they're about half right, because about half the things that go wrong are disks. Uh, they're the ones that have the big moving components in them, but then again, power supplies tend to have some of the the highest wear components. They they tend to go out. They generate a lot of heat. Uh, they're under quite a bit of stress. Um, one trend I've seen in computer hardware in general, and disks in specific, is actually going to a – well, people are building redundant systems, so I can build cheaper quality hardware so because they're going to have a failover system. <laughs> so I, I've kind of seen the, the other side of that, that, 
but we know that a certain percentage of disks are going to fail. As long as they don't fail within a certain time window of each other, we're good to go. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I mean, I've seen things, I've seen boot disks take systems out before. Uh, you know, that's, that's not going to, uh, you know, clustering will, will help you on that one quite a bit. Yeah. Uh, I've seen um, memory go bad, of course. Uh, I've even seen a processor burn up once or twice. Power supplies go. Um, also, by, by putting different hosts in, you can put them in somewhat slightly different physical locations. You can connect them to different power feeds. You can have them on different cooling platforms yeah. so that there are ways of, of spreading out your environmental risks yeah, in so a cluster and still, still keep them close. <laughs> That's right. When the air conditioner dies. Hey, don't, don't laugh. Oh. I've had that happen in a, in a class one data center before. I've had the AC go out and lost a, a whole tape array because of it. It yeah. can happen. And it was a, a 25 cent thermocouple that took it out. It thought it was cooling and it wasn't. Yeah. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah, you get some weird environmental things. I remember one of the funniest things when I was working at HP was, uh, used to have the old halon systems or, or CO2 systems and things. And, uh, uh, it was quite quite interesting seeing rooms where that was accidentally set off and going in to look at the systems and sort of almost chipping away at the ice on the front of the, the screens and <laughs> seeing if the system is still working underneath there, yeah. Yeah, one of the things that, that working in the, the process automation of that steel mill for better than seven years taught me is that uh, Murphy is the patron saint of computer science because if anything can go wrong on a computer... It, it will, for sure. <laughs> and so, listen, the last main topic then is just what's coming 2008-wise change for changes. Well, one of the things that we're going to see with 2008 is a big difference in the way they build clusters. Um, anybody who's ever built one notices that quite, a, quite immediately that there's a big difference between how you build a cluster and how you do SQL. When you create a cluster in Windows, you start off with one node, and then you bring the other nodes into it. Uh, the binaries are actually in place as part of the basic OS. Mm. And they've changed the SQL installer, uh, the clustering, well, all of the SQL installer, but especially the clustering components to kind of do the same thing. They're looking at bringing it, creating a base cluster, a single node cluster, and saying, okay, you can see the same disks, you can join me and now be into this cluster. And add nodes in there gradually, just like we do with Windows 2003. To me, that makes a lot more sense because it supports the failure recovery scenarios and growth scenarios so much better. Mm-hmm. And, of course, um, ultimately what we'd like to see is, is clustering take on the, the definitions that maybe some of the other vendors have. Um, you know, the, the ultimate being that I have eight computers and none of them are, there's no big storage in there. They're just your plain, simple, you know, dual-proc bricks from big favorite vendor. And I need yep. more database power. I need to plug another one in. Now, I haven't seen anything definitive from Microsoft on this or not, but we know those are fairly bright people over there, and we know that's kind of where everybody would love to get to. Uh, So I'd be surprised if they don't have anything in the uh, the labs at least working towards that type of a goal. That's, I think, ultimately when we're going to see database be, at least for most commodity-type applications, similar to a web farm or an application farm. Yeah. I think it's going to be several years before we see that, but we're going to see a, a much expanded definition of clustering to, to mean not only failover, but eventually I think we're going to be able to embrace the scale out in that, in that arena. 
Actually, the last topic on this, uh, I do want to mention, there is another one, um, is just your basic thoughts on clustering versus mirroring. I think mirroring is a great complement to clustering. Um, mirroring is, is good uh, because you can use asymmetrical hardware. Yeah. Uh, you can use more geographically dispersed, especially if you're willing to go asynchronous. One of the problems, though, with mirroring is they've noticed that if you uh, go above a certain stress level on your CPUs or a certain number of databases on your system, there's some pretty severe limits. You can only mirror, especially in the 32-bit world, maybe 10 databases tops. Clustering doesn't care how many databases are in the system. So there's some different limitations in there. Have you seen the benefits in there between? I'm sorry, have sorry, you seen go ahead, spelled out anywhere? I know. I normally tell people myself about. I find about eight to ten databases is about the right number. Um, and I just wondered. I, I, I had a feeling Project Real or somewhere there might have been some of that number spelled out because I've often had people say, "Well, why that number?" But it just seems to be about right. The number I got was from a program manager at Microsoft at the 2006 PASS Summit. You can tell I'm a big fan of the, of the PASS Summit. Yeah. And this was. It was a two, yeah, it was 2006. It was shortly after we got 2005 in the marketplace, but before Service Pack 1. So we had maybe an 05 summit. It was, it was the first summit after we got uh, mirroring, and bef- but before they had really turned it on for everybody. Because remember, it didn't yeah. work until automatically service. before yeah. the Service Pack 1. And they were that was one of the reasons was that there were certain scalability limits that they hadn't fully explored. And this was the general limit that we were seeing, and it's mainly due to internal thread allocation, that mirroring has certain hard threads that it binds to inside SQL. And unless you're running a really high number of cores, you're going to have some problems with thread starvation Mm. if you start spinning these up, because each mirroring instance requires a fairly good number of threads. I want to say like 8 to 10 threads. Yeah. Uh, And so eventually you end up, Without any more threads, and that's that's the problem with scalability and mirroring. Um, the other thing you know, clustering I, doesn't suffer from that. The other thing I find a little bit strange, management-wise, is that when I'm working with a cluster, at least the whole thing is failed over, or the whole thing is failed back. Where with mirroring, it's quite common. I go in and I'll have six databases on one <laughs> on the primary, and two of them are currently running on the what was the secondary, and so on. So. Uh, it, because it is well, yeah, the mirroring data. occurs at the at the database level and is managed at the database level, whereas clustering is managed at the instance level. So if yeah. I lose one disk out of a cluster, or one network connection, or any any of the necessary resources to operate that clustered instance, everything goes over to the next node in line. Yeah, the thing I've found, I've found it quite strange. I'm not, I'm not even sure why it's ended up happening, but often when I uh, go to mirroring sites where we've got yeah eight or ten databases, I certainly don't find them all it on the one node <laughs> you know, at all. It's a, it's quite common to end up seeing uh, some databases active on one and some on the other, which is yeah quite strange. So, but uh, yeah, but, I mean I'm not, I'm not knocking mirroring. It has its place. It's a very mm-hmm. useful piece. It's a great complement to the whole high availability toolkit, uh, and I, I'm glad Microsoft put it out there, but it's not a, a one-for-one all-situation replacement for clustering. Neither is look, clustering a, a one-for-one all-situation replacement for mirroring. Yeah, it, look, it's a, I think it's a great 
particularly cost-based solution, where you're then to also talking about uh, it's effectively shared nothing, basically, I think they normally say. But, um, mm-hmm. but yeah, uh, again, just not having to have the systems identical and everything. It's a, it, Yeah, it does have a definite upside in, in some of those areas. But it's funny. It Microsoft actually called clustering a shared nothing technology because no instance is dependent on anything of any other instance in mm. a cluster. They're, they're totally independent of each other, and no instance is locked into resources that are only available on one node. So by that definition, that's actually where they started with the shared nothing. They don't, mm. they don't need each other for anything, uh, is, is where that originated. Yeah. So listen, is there anything else you're aware of 2008 wise that would affect clustering? Or is that's that all I've had a chance to, to, to actually look over and, and work with. They're looking now at, uh, at bigger scalability limits in the, in the cluster. Essentially, no limit to the, to the number of nodes. Um, you know, however many the OS supports, just keep adding nodes, keep adding instances. Yeah. Um, personally, you know, I'm, I'm concerned. You know, I've, I've had, uh, issues in the management of, you know, four node or four node three instance clusters. It, it changes the way you, you think about them. Uh, I hesitate to look at, you know, a 50 node cluster and go, what in the, you know, how do you, how do you deal with that? <laughs> yeah. No. Well, listen, that pretty much brings up to time, Jeff. Uh, you mentioned, uh, the past conference. Uh, I think that's the last time I saw you actually it was, uh, probably at the one last year, I think. Uh, but, uh, where will we mm-hmm. see you? up uh, perhaps TechEd or usually uh, the only uh, big conference I get to is is PASS yep. um, you know I, I, any other kind of regional events I, I try to make it to being in Atlanta we're a large regional hub so we get to we get to see some stuff there but uh, now the PASS is usually my, my big conference for the year um, so that's coming up to, later in the year have to, have to living, you know so later in the year in don't, Seattle don't really get to, yeah, I think it's in uh, November this year. Um, it's the week before U.S. Thanksgiving, uh, or the week before the or the week of Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving in America is always on a Thursday, so it's the the full week before that, which is usually pretty good. That's not a heavy travel week. Yeah, uh, it's just Seattle in November is not going to be all that pleasant. That's <laughs> that's when the that's when it's uh, let's see, it's cold and rainy versus you know. Neutral or warm and rainy, which I think is the only weather options we get out there. Actually, I, I quite I, I don't mind the the weather in Seattle. I, I must admit it's it's funny. Before I went there, everybody always told me that it just rains all the time, and I thought, yeah, well, I mean, it kind of does. I mean, you just have that misty sort of uh, rain a fair bit. But yeah. it was funny. I, I had a friend who moved there, and she said, oh, you get the Seattle blues. She said it was where you. Uh, uh, she said, at first you get really depressed <laughs> for quite a while. She said, but then eventually you give up and you go for walks in the rain and picnic in the rain and, <laughs> and so on. But, <laughs> but look, I, I've not found it that bad, actually. Um, it, it, it amazed me. I used to watch a lot of the Microsoft videos and endlessly every outside shot, everything was wet. And I thought, oh, okay, <laughs> I don't know about this. But uh, I must admit, when I've been there, I've had some glorious weather in Seattle. So uh, eh, I don't know. I, I think you can get both. So. Yeah, it's... I'm usually only there for a week at a time. Uh, I'm actually headed there uh, next week for some uh, for some training, so I'll get to I get to enjoy them in uh, <laughs> this time of year. So excellent. Shouldn't, well, shouldn't listen, be too bad. Thank you so much for your time today, Jeff. That's been excellent. Well, thanks for thanks for calling and thanking me on this. This has been uh, this has been fun. I 
just recently started uh, started blogging last year and enjoy that. And I think these are new ways to to reach out to the community and uh, and you know connect to folks that don't make it to the conferences and and are well basically where I was when I first started uh, way back in the middle of nowhere, relying on news groups and yeah. experts that I've never met face to face to keep me employed essentially. <laughs> I guess that's I guess that's why I do what I do as the MVP is is. You know, paying back for the folks that, that that kept me alive when it was when it was important, or professionally at least, kept me going when when there really wasn't any other resources. Yeah, it, look, it's good to hear you say that. It, it's interesting when when I was uh, in sort of our 30s, one of the things I got back into doing was baseball umpiring, and people always said to me, "Why, why on earth would you want to put yourself into that loop?" And to me, it was, it just struck me that when I was a kid, somebody else did that for me. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. yeah, you just sort of think, yeah, so sometimes, yeah, I think it is important to do that. So, but again, oh, yeah, my, my wife's a big, uh, Girl Scout troop leader and cookie mom and all that other fun stuff that you do for the, the kids. She volunteers for this and that. And that's, uh, you know, that, that, that's just huge. It, it's, uh, you know, it's good for your kids. It's good for all the kids. It's yeah, just kind of a way of, exactly. of, uh, you know, being a, a good part of the community. Well, thank you for all your help with the listeners today. All right. Thanks, Greg. Thanks for having me.